Good morning. I'm Wimala, and today is December 24th. After some nice kind of dry, sunny weather, today we're having foggy, uh, damp weather, so things change. So today I would like, as our Christmas Eve uh, celebration, I'd like to read a little bit from Wisdom is Bliss by Robert Thurman. And I've been reading a little bit from his uh, chapters on the what he calls the realistic noble path. And uh, we've, we've sh I've shared some of those. And today I'd like to talk ab about his... Uh, chapter called Sharing My Consolation Prize. But he's talking about working with the Four Noble Truths. So let's read some of this and then we'll sit together. Well then, we have gone through the entirety of the Four Noble Truths, or as I call them, the Four Friendly Facts. The first of the four was the diagnosis Buddha says, if you're not enlightened, that means you don't know what you are and you don't know what the world you're in is really about. Therefore, you're going to have a frustration time because you're going to be wandering like a blind person on the freeway. That's not even a genius statement. It's an obvious statement. If you don't know what's going on, you're going to have a hard time. It's very simple, although he said it's a fact for a noble, truly friendly person. He had a special definition of noble. Noble means someone who has a degree of altruistic perception, not just a moralistic attitude about altruism, and who therefore perceives the life pulse of others as equal to their own in importance and in reality, and when and who, therefore, is truly friendly with other beings. I like that definition for a noble person. We talk about noble friends. So a noble person perceives the life pulse of others as equal to their own in importance and in reality, and who therefore is truly, truly friendly with other beings. The second truth stems from the fact that most people are not going to agree that ordinary life is suffering. They have moments of relief. They have moments of pleasure and pain. It's not all suffering. So they won't agree with that. So it's not a fact for them. We know that's true. There are many people who just don't think that there is any suffering in life. The second truth is that there's a cause of that unenlightenment. What's the cause? The cause is self-centeredness. Not that people are immoral. It isn't that. They can be quite moral by following rules. It's that the unenlightened person thinks, I'm the one, like Neo in The Matrix. Many of us here might be thinking that each person is the main person in their own life, right? Don't we think that? 
At least we think we're supposed to look out for number one, be responsible, whatever. We make ourselves separate from others, and we crave for things to be a certain way, and this separates us further into an unrealistic state of alienation because we quickly note that other people don't normally think we're the one. Except maybe mom or dad, or maybe, perhaps temporarily, someone who is in love with us. Then Buddha gave a very hopeful and very surprising prognosis, the third noble truth. Nobody believes it, really. It's the prognosis that you can be free of suffering really free of suffering, not just enjoying temporary relief, a bit of pleasure that won't last from some external event, or some success or the acquisition of something or a nice relationship, but that just from within, from knowing your own true nature, you can have perfect freedom from suffering. He taught that, and he manifested it himself, with many, when, and many people realized it in his own time. Subsequently, many people have realized that, and probably some of you have realized that. The prognosis is not very good. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm having trouble with the outside lighting. is not so great. The prognosis is very, very good. You're taught and our somewhat constricted culture and somewhat militaristic society coming from a Euro-American colonialist past that you're hardwired and there's nothing you can do about it. The way the Buddhist inner, inner scientists understand your... Let me try that one again too. The way the Buddhist inner scientists understand your humanity, however, is that you are not very hardwired at all. The Buddhist view is that the human being is completely malleable in their wiring. Any human being can become a saint and very easygoing, and any human being can become quite evil and very difficult if they go on the dark side and all degrees in between. Actually, every human being is constantly changing all the time. If you don't become more conscious about how you change and what changes things and what influences you, and you do not choose what you allow to influence you by using your intelligent discrimination, then you will probably be changed for the worse. This is why we have the fourth truth, and that's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is like a whole curriculum of a university. It should be the core curriculum of all our liberal educating universities, 100%. The first path asks, what is real versus what is unreal? This is what we refer to as realistic worldview. Are you just a brain being carried around on top of a skeleton in between Halloweens, rattling around in there, hopefully producing a lot of dopamine to make you feel better without any malevolent drugs. Hopefully that's what you are. But are you that? 
Are you, mer are you merely a brain? Is your life really meaningless, ultimately? Does nobody really care about it? Should you, therefore, realistically speaking, not really care about it, except for what you can get out of this or that pleasure? Do you have a purpose? How happy can you be? Even that's open to question. I think most people don't think they can really be that happy. They feel wisdom is a kind of resignation to carrying misery with nobility. Just stagger around and have the occasional glass of wine. Even the idea of Nibbana, that you can be perfect, perfectly happy, sure, give me a break. That's why Buddha was so smart. For less capable people, he was careful not to really say Nibbana is bliss. He would just say that Nibbana is freedom from suffering. It's the end of suffering. He didn't really say bliss that much. Now and then, but not all the time. He just said end of suffering and let people think about what that might be, probably knowing that the more psycho among them would just think it was an annihilation, anesthesia, you know, that was more sensible to them they would be less skeptical about it. Your realistic worldview is that you're here forever and you have to be conceived, you have to be concerned, not just with your old age and your pension. You have to be concerned with your next life. The way to be more concerned for your next life is to invest now in your mind and get your mind open and clear. That's the first thing. Once you have that realistic worldview, you realize you are a precious continuum of good energy, still dragging along behind you some bad energy. And your job as a human is to take this unique opportunity to really increase the good exponentially and really decrease the bad just as exponentially. Then you have the realistic motivation. Sometimes people like to translate it as intention. I like motivation. So realistic motivation. Once you have adopted compassionate commitment to causality, then your motivation is to associate yourself with all good causes and reduce connection to negative causes. You are an evolving being, and you should develop the motivation to use your time and being conscious so that you're motivated to always choose the positive, even if it's the tiniest little thing. And your motivation is to always choose the slight increment that's being, that's better, as opposed to the increment that's worse. Then from realistic motivation or intention, realistic speech is next. Speech should only be truthful. It should be only peacemaking. It should be only gentle, and it should be only meaningful. Babbling mean meaninglessly or harshly or untruthfully or making people enemies with each other, thinking that you'll get a benefit out of that, 
Those kinds of speech are really negative actions and sadly very powerful. Next you have what's called realistic evolutionary action. Realistic karma doesn't just mean any act. It means an evolutionary act, an act you do with a certain intention. Because your mind is involved, it will change the shape of your life. When you do changes the way you are, I'm sorry, what you do changes the way you are. And not just what you do physically. What you do verbally and what you do mentally will change the mode of your life. You want to do only that which will change your life and your mind for the better. What you discover with realistic evolutionary action is that the mind causes change and therefore you have to gain leverage over your mind. You might think somebody was mean to me and then you brood and brood and then you can't get out of that cycle of brooding which will lead to being depressed and freaked out. Instead, you feel there is a part of your mind that is brooding, and you tell it, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. They were unpleasant yesterday, but forget them. I'm going to have a happy time today. I'm going to do something else. You can switch. As I said before, It's like you get a clicker for your mind. Otherwise, you have to follow everywhere your mind leads you. You're just a victim of thought, of thoughts that are put in there by conditioning that you have no control over. So you're just a victim of your own environment and you don't have any freedom in your mind. When your mind tells you, oh, he said that to me, I have to get freaked out. Can you instead instead sit back and say something else? Why should I do that? What good is that going to do? That's not going to help. Your more intelligent mind comes and intervenes, and you have a dialogue inside yourself. That's not a sign of dementia. That's a sign of waking up. I love the, his humor. Then there is realistic livelihood, number five. You shouldn't have a profession where you're doing something harmful to anybody. You shouldn't work for companies that do harmful things to people. You should only have a livelihood that benefits people because you get an evolutionary impact from it. That's very important. The professions of weapon makers, butchers, alcohol distributors, and addictive drug pushers of various kinds are all strongly Disrecommended. You can figure that out for yourself. That's realistic livelihood. Then six is realistic creativity. This is where you get out of your laziness. You become really creative when you realize that you have to do something about your life in your mind and that no one else can do it for you. I love that about Buddha. Buddha's like, Oh, wow, I'm enlightened. I'm so cool. I know I'm happy because I see you can become enlightened, but I can't make you enlightened. You have to understand your own state. You can do that. I see that. But you have to do it yourself. I can't understand yourself for you. 
You have to understand yourself. Faith alone will not make you enlightened. Understanding makes you enlightened, and you have to have that understanding. That's why Buddha's big job was to found a school, really not a religion, but a school. It's not just a school to enable you to have a profession and produce things. It's a school to make you evolve. You produce yourself in a future world, and you are able to do things for other beings and produce their happiness by being a loving being in both this and a future world. That's what it's about, to really be competently a loving being. That's quite a task, and that's what you become when you become enlightened. Then there's realistic mindfulness. After creativity, mindfulness. Mindfulness really means becoming self-aware in a different way. It doesn't just mean when you're meditating. It also means to be more self-conscious of yourself when you're interacting with people. The groundwork of it is counting to ten, counting your breath, looking there at yourself. The real groundwork is to become aware, to observe how your mind works inside and how your thoughts link together. And you find the gaps in those links and learn to interfere with the ones that are going in the wrong direction and to empower the ones that are going in the right direction. At first, you just want to see what's happening. That's realistic mindfulness. Finally, the last of them, the last of them all, is the true meditation one, which is realistic samadhi, a concentrated, one-pointed meditation. In other words, you shouldn't do heavy meditation, really intense, shutting your mind onto one point until you know which point to shut it down to. If you take your ignorance and become concentrated on it, you will become more magnificently ignorant. That's really very important, as there's a lot to learn. I love this. This is really important. We, these are all, we have stages in meditation. We don't all start out doing samadhi. Because that's really the samadhi is that real, that total stability of the mind. So we want to work up to that, that, and he calls it that one-pointed focus. It's concentration. But we do have to work up to it. And mindfulness practice is, is the way we work up to it. Now, that's we finished uh, samadhi, or that uh, concentration. As I mentioned, Buddhism is like a school. And it has, I'm sorry, mm. and it has many courses. They're open to all to take. You don't have to be Buddhist, and you don't have to become Buddhist either. You'll be a better Christian, or Jew, or secularist, or whatever you will if you study from these courses. Of course, Buddhists should study other courses. 
The Dalai Lama is always sending his monks off to Christian monasteries and convents to study how those monks and learns, monks and nuns, do this and that. <clears throat> he particularly likes the Catholic nuns who run hospitals and do other good works. He thinks the Buddhists don't do enough of that, and he likes that very, very much. I agree with him on that. Uh, I love the Dominican nuns at the Siena Center in Racine, Wisconsin, where uh, I do retreats. And uh, I, have, I admired them so much. So that's the Eightfold Path, and that was Buddha's basic therapy. It was Buddha's basic force for good, his vision for the world, like his education system. What you see the Dalai Lama doing is not promoting Buddhism. He may do that for Buddhists, but for others, he's not promoting any such thing. He is trying to change the education system to bring more compassion and love into people's minds as part of their education. And, of course, the root of compassion is realistic wisdom, knowing what reality is. The more you know what reality is, the more you know you really do depend on others. And then you know the quality of your life depends to a huge degree on your relationships with others. Therefore, you will find the resources for the inner bliss that enables you to be more loving and compassionate to others. And then you'll be happy. And that's just the first section of his last chapter. So there's one other section. Maybe we'll read this Sharing My Consolation Prize. That's the second part of this chapter. So that's enough reading for today. Let's spend a little time sitting together. I need a bookmark. Okay, I'll remember that. So I love his writing, and he's he's coming from the um, Tibetan tradition but it speaks completely to all of us as human beings. And he's, he's very, uh, you can see that all the traditions in Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are the essence, the basic. So uh, we can share a lot with each other. So why don't we just sit together and then hopefully you can keep sitting when, when uh, I have to, finish. But have beautiful holidays. I hope you, uh, even if this isn't your uh, special holiday, if Christmas is not your thing or not your holiday, I hope you have some time off and you have uh, some rest from your work and from the busyness of the world. And even if Christmas is your thing, I hope you have some rest and <laughs> and can be away from the busyness of the world. So, mm. 
Just be aware of the body breathing. Whatever your posture is, whether you're walking right now, whether you're in bed, whether you're sitting up or on a cushion, just become aware of your body breathing. When we introduce beautiful thoughts into our mind, that's a way to do exactly what he's talking about. Uh, we're, we're allowing our brain to change, and we know we're not locked. We know we can change and transform and keep learning all of our lives. So as these as beautiful thoughts come into your mind, we can we can let thoughts that are maybe more about worry or more fear or uh, old thoughts that we don't want to just keep bringing up over and over, we can let them go. We're replacing them with these beautiful thoughts. And then we have to keep maintaining that. We have to guard, we have to guard our mind. But we maintain it the way a gardener lovingly tends a garden. Just be with each breath. Let your chest be a little more open. Maybe roll your shoulders back a bit. Take in more air. Just with your natural breath. We're not not, uh, making a, a deep breath in and out. We're just breathing normally. So we can open our lungs up so it's easier to do that. Be aware of your body. Aware of feelings. aware of our thoughts. And aware of the reality all around us and within us.
Now, because we're not in deep samadhi, and that's one-pointed concentration, we can be aware of the sounds, any smells. We can be aware of contact that our body's making, that our skin is feeling. And if your eyes are open, we have that visual field. We're trying to cut a little bit of that out when we close our eyes in meditation. And our brain is thinking, we're aware of our thoughts. We need to be aware of them and realize that they are just the way we take in the world. They don't have to be disturbances. We can learn gradually to guard them. Think of those sense doors. We can learn to just let go of being so attached to having to interact with everything. We can learn to be just observing, be the observer. As the observer, we don't need to be distracted by what's going on around us and in us. We can just watch. Gradually, we're learning the degree to which we want to open and close to those outer bits of the world. Time for me to end, but I hope you can keep sitting. Just remember, may everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings. And may all of you 
May all of us be well, feel safe, be contented, and experience joyful moments and happiness. And may we all know peace 